Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 14 in your New Testament scriptures. Romans chapter 14 this morning, and it is very good to be back with you after a week away. I appreciate Andrew stepping in and preaching last week, and we're thankful to be worshiping with you again today. I do want to thank you all for your prayers on behalf of my dad. Several of you asked, and I'm very uh, grateful for that. Uh, just a quick update with reference to uh, our family there. Most of you have for months been praying for my stepmother as she's received her treatments for breast cancer. That continues to go very well. I think she's either getting her last treatment this week or, or she just had it. So that, that's been a good, tiring, but a good road uh, for her. It's gone well, so thanks for your prayers. Then I don't think I told you about two weeks after we went and saw my parents, uh, my stepmother's brother, Terry, he died. So I went down and was able to preach his funeral and, and see other family and, and give the gospel. And then just a few weeks after that, we had the issue with my dad where he thought he just had some bad uh, indigestion or, or heartburn and ended up going into the hospital, been a minor heart attack. And as you heard, he had five stents put in. Again, that went well, thank the Lord. Uh, recovering well, but drove down again just to see him and, and spend a few hours with him that afternoon. I told them when they opened the door, look, if you want me to come over for dinner, there's other ways to do this. You know, We do love you, but uh, thank the Lord. Uh, Mom and Dad doing well, and just all of you asking, really, really are grateful for your prayers. So Romans 14 today, and let me read verses 1 through 12 for us. Hear now the word of God. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, 
as we prayed earlier that you would form your character in us, the reading and preaching of the word is one of the primary means by which you do that. And we have sung truth already and praise to you. We've, we've learned by what we've sung. We've read scripture and prayed. And now we ask that through the preaching, uh, you might continue to shape our character, form our consciences, guide us in our walk, and be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you like to be wrong? Yeah, I didn't think I'd get any takers on that question. None of us like to be wrong. I'd even be so bold as to predict that all of us like to be right. We have our reasons for why we do what we do or don't do. And when someone challenges or criticizes those, we probably feel irritated. It might put us on the defensive. But here's the rub. None of us agree on every particular aspect of life. None of us in this room live the exact same life. You and your spouse don't even have the exact same ideas and choices in every area of life. And that includes areas that have moral and ethical implications. There are differences between us. So what do you do when those differences threaten to divide Christians from one another and churches from one another? That was the situation Paul was facing when he penned the verses that we have read today. As you can tell from the opening of uh, the passage, Paul, the Christians at Rome were quarreling over disputable matters. One group of people was treating the other with contempt. And that group of people was judging the other. And this could have resulted in rival factions in the church. Think of those opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. I follow Paul. I I follow Peter. Could have been a church divided amongst itself. Or perhaps more likely with the Roman situation, it could have resulted in different groups meeting in separate churches. When we get to Romans 16, that there's some clues there that Paul is addressing various congregations throughout the city. And that's not a problem if you worship in a different place for geographical reasons. But if it's because of divisions, I'm going over to that house church because I have more affinity with them, then that is where Paul senses a problem. And so he seeks to heal that division with the truths of the gospel. And so as we get close to the end of this book, we'll finish Romans in the first few months of this year. Let's not lose sight of what Romans has been about all along. It has been about the gospel, which is the power of God that brings salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike, to both groups. Both have sinned and both are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know the later parts of Romans may sound a little different from the first parts, with all the righteousness language and the justification language, but one idea holds all the parts together, and that is the gospel. The gospel has saving power, And the gospel has unifying power. 
As one author puts it, justification by faith includes fellowship by faith. And so, friends, let's use this passage to answer the question, how does the gospel heal our divisions in the church? Now, that topic takes up all of Romans 14 and wades into Romans 15. We only read 12 verses today, and we'll actually only look at about four of them this morning. We'll pick up the pace next Sunday, but to lay the foundation, we'll begin to examine this idea. So there's several ways the gospel heals our divisions in the church. We'll just look at two of them today. Now here's the first. By recognizing where Christians can disagree with one another. The gospel informs us of where Christians can disagree with one another. Paul begins verse 1 with this admonition. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. First, notice the phrase, the one whose faith is weak. Throughout this passage, when Paul says that people have weak faith, he is not referring to those who lack commitment to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Nor is he talking about those who lack assurance of salvation. Weak faith means they have a tender conscience in certain areas. And verse 2 sheds more light on this. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Here we see that for one group of people, their faith in Christ allows them to eat anything, but for another group of people, their faith does not. So let's fill in the background for that situation, and it will make more sense, and we'll begin to see how it's applicable to us. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament law, certain foods were designated unclean and forbidden for God's people. Observant Jews did not eat those foods. In fact, many Jews did not even share a meal with Gentiles, lest they be defiled. Now, According to Jesus' teaching, nothing that enters a person can defile them. It's only the evil that comes out of the heart. And Jesus' earliest followers deduced from that teaching that Jesus had made a change in the law. He declared all foods clean. That's Mark's comment in his gospel. However... It took a long time for Jesus' followers to really work that teaching through their conscience. Remember the vision that God showed Peter of the unclean animals in the sheet? Three times God himself had to tell Peter, who had heard Jesus' teachings, kill and eat. And that was a sign to Peter that he should go visit the Gentile Cornelius. In Galatians, we read that Paul at one point rebuked Peter because he had withdrawn from eating with Gentile Christians because Peter was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
So Peter knew that Jesus declared all foods clean. He he was aware of that teaching, but he struggled to really believe it. And it took time for Peter's conscience to allow him to do what his faith informed him that he could do. And that is exactly the situation that the Roman church is facing. For one group, their faith allows them to eat anything. They have no scruples about eating foods that are forbidden by the Mosaic Covenant. They know they are not bound by those commands. So perhaps these are Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ. They were never under the Mosaic Covenant to begin with. They've never been conditioned to think of certain foods as unclean. And this group would also include Jewish Christians who, like Paul, had thought through the ramifications of Jesus' teaching, and they understand their freedom to eat previously forbidden foods. That's one group. But on the other hand, you have a group of people who eat only vegetables. Now, the Mosaic Covenant did not actually forbid all meat. So it could be that these people couldn't find kosher meat where they lived, and so they just avoided meat altogether. They, just, they took a let's just play it safe approach, and they avoided all meat. Or it could be that they were perceived by others as being vegetarian. So maybe it's a critical label. Oh yeah, those conscientious Jews or, or God-fearers, they, they just avoid all their meats because they're afraid of contamination. Whatever the reason for the label... Their decisions, their dietary decisions, are based on continuing adherence to the Mosaic uh, regulations. They had not worked through the full implications that their faith in Christ freed them from the Jewish dietary laws. And so their conscience would not allow them to eat those foods. Now, Before we move on and and talk about how Paul dealt with that situation, let's just go ahead and note the other two areas where Paul says these two groups did not see eye to eye. So in verse 5, Paul writes, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Here Paul probably refers to the various holy days that the Old Testament prescribed, your festivals like Passover and Tabernacle and booths. Or he may have in mind traditional fasting uh, and prayer days, just days that over time became the designated days of prayer and fasting. Once again, Paul is implying these practices are not mandatory for followers of Jesus. And one group understands that and doesn't observe those days. Another group still observes those days. And then one last issue, though it comes from the next section. In verse 21, Paul refers to drinking wine. Now, once again, this probably has ceremonial implications. Like meat, the Old Testament does not give a blanket prohibition on drinking wine. 
Those who took a Nazarite vow could not drink wine, and the Aaronic priests could not drink when they entered the tent of meeting. However, the Old Testament stops short of forbidding all drinking for all people, and in fact, in some places, it commends it. So why this reference? Well, a possible background is the first chapter of Daniel, where the Babylonian king assigned Daniel and his three friends a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. However, Daniel and his friends abstained, and received only vegetables and water in order not to defile themselves. You hear that? That's the language of ritual contamination. Wine was often used in pagan religious celebrations, and conscientious believers may have avoided it, lest it not fulfill the ritual requirement of the Mosaic Covenant. Once again, it lets us play its safe approach. Well, Paul refers to all three of these issues in verse 1 as disputable matters. In other words, these are areas on which Christians will disagree for various reasons, such as your background, your temperament, your experience in the faith, your knowledge of the word, and so on, you will come to different conclusions about what Christians should and should not do in certain areas. And according to Paul, that's okay. Now, you may be wondering, well, how do I know which areas are permissible for disagreement? Well, To give a full answer to that question would take a whole another message, probably a series of messages. But I'll give you a brief answer for now, based on Romans. And I would say that the main criterion would be the gospel. Is the truth or the practice in question essential to the gospel? Paul writes later in Romans 16, 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. That's a very different tone from Romans 14. But the teaching Paul refers to there is likely the teaching he has given in the book of Romans, which is an exposition of the gospel. Paul is saying if they reject that teaching, if they do things that lead to the end of the gospel, then there should be avoidance. So I don't think that Paul viewed Romans 6, for example, where he tells us to offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. I don't think he viewed that as negotiable. However, when it comes to matters that the scriptures neither require nor prohibit, when the truth or practice in question does not threaten the gospel, it's okay for Christians to disagree with one another. And friends, this could be in areas of application. So the Bible gives certain commands. Those aren't negotiable. But how those commands get worked out in my life may look different from how they get worked out in your life. They could be areas of association. 
Maybe you want to avoid certain practices because they are associated with other vices. Whereas another believer may enjoy the practice because they are not doing the accompanying vice. It could be how the Christian relates to culture, how they seek to address problems in the culture by voting or their opinions on matters of policy. Like I say, this could be its own series of messages. And so for now, I simply want to introduce you to the idea that one way of healing divisions in the church is by recognizing that in many areas, Christians can disagree with one another. So let's introduce the second way the gospel heals divisions in the church, and this is as far as we will get today. The second way is by accepting others as God accepts them. What should Christians do when they find themselves disagreeing with one another on these issues? Maybe with people in this very room. Well, Paul gives the answer in verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And that word accept, it means to extend a welcome, to receive into one's home, or circle of acquaintances. To accept one another isn't just, okay, I'll permit that that person can be here or allow them to exist. It's the word for embracing them as family. One author explains it like this, to treat them as brothers and sisters in the intimate fellowship typical of the people of God. Quite simply, we do not break fellowship or avoid one another Because we disagree on disputable matters. In fact, Paul tells us that we should welcome one another without quarreling. Why does he say that? Because that's exactly what we're tempted to do when we disagree with others on matters that are important to us. Remember, Paul is calling these issues disputable matters. But to those who were practicing them, they weren't disputable. Why did they abstain from forbidden meat? Because as far as they were concerned, it was forbidden. In their mind, it was a law, and God's laws are not suggestions. To them, it was a moral issue. Now, as you can tell from the flow of Paul's argument, their conclusion about the food laws was incorrect. Those laws were no longer binding. However... Paul has a larger concern in this passage than showing who is right and wrong. His bigger concern is to bring the church to love and unity in the face of divisive differences. And his strategy to produce love and unity is for believers to accept one another in the faith. I mean, friends, this is Paul. He's not afraid to mince words. Paul could have settled the debate. He could have said to the weak, your conscience is wrong, accept what God permits, and let go of your scruples. But he didn't do that. Nor did he say to the strong, hey, listen, we don't want to upset people. Let's just make a policy that will never do something that upsets people in the church. No. Instead, 
he told both parties to receive one another in love. Notice verse 3. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Those who eat everything, again, those whose conscience allows them to eat previously forbidden food, they must not treat with contempt those who do not. To treat with contempt is to have a disdainful, condescending attitude towards someone. And that attitude usually shows up in certain actions. Uh, As we'll see later in this passage, Paul also counsels the strong, don't put pressure on the weak to sin against their conscience. Likewise, those who abstain, those whose conscience won't permit them to eat those meats, they must not judge those who do not abstain. And to judge in this instance is to condemn, to criticize, to find fault. Why do people judge? Because they view that person as a threat. Your choices threaten the community. And they assume that God will likewise condemn that person for their choices, just as the person judging does. Those are the temptations that we face when we disagree with one another. One author, one author summarizes it like this. We can well imagine the attitude of the strong majority who prided themselves on their enlightened liberal perspective towards those whom they considered to be foolishly hung up on the trivia of a bygone era. The weak responded in kind, considering themselves to be the righteous remnant who alone upheld true standards of piety and righteousness and who were standing in judgment over those who fell beneath these standards. In the place of those attitudes, Paul admonishes us to accept one another. Why? Because as the end of verse 3 reads, for God has accepted them. If God accepts us by faith, then we must accept one another in the faith. To reuse the quote from earlier, since justification is by faith, fellowship is by faith. If God gives us liberty of conscience in certain areas, then we must grant it to others. The church can be, it isn't always, but it can be a place of acceptance and safety if we follow Paul's commands in this area. And one last thought brings this idea to a close. Paul writes in verse 4, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Here Paul gives a further reason for why we should accept one another. Not only because God has accepted them, but also because Christians ultimately give an account not to one another, but to God. The word Paul uses for servant here, it's not the word normally translated as servant. It's more specific. It refers to a domestic servant, one who serves in a house. And the point is to highlight that we are all members of God's household. And so one group of Christians has no right to judge other members of the household. 
rather to our own master, God. We stand or fall. And to stand or fall is to meet with approval or disapproval. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether we have the approval and disapproval of other Christians. What matters is whether we have God's approval. And how do we gain God's approval? The end of verse 4 reads, And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. We stand, or better yet, we are upheld by faith in the Lord. That's how Romans began justification by faith. We stand before God on the last day and right now by faith in the Lord, not the position we take on disputable matters. God receives us as his family on the basis of faith, not our adherence to food laws, holy days, alcohol taboos, or any other disputable matter. Christians are marked by their trust that God raised Jesus from their dead and their allegiance to Jesus as Lord. That is the gospel, which heals not only our relationship with God, but also our divisions with one another. So let's give thanks and pray to that end. Father in heaven, We thank you that Jesus is Lord and that you raised him from the dead and that he's reigning over the nations and calling us to render the obedience of faith. My prayer for us as a church is, first of all, that we would all be in the faith. What you speak to us here, Lord, is for those who acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, who have faith, who are in that family. And my prayer is that That is true for all of us here today. And then, Lord, as your family, give us wisdom to discern disputable matters. Where do you want us to obey you? Where are the non-negotiables? And where are those matters on which we can disagree? And, Lord, teach our conscience. Think of the long walk with you that we go through over the years. So much of it is you shaping our beliefs, our practices, and informing our conscience. So, Lord, do that for each of us by your word and spirit. And then grant that we would receive one another in love so that this body could worship and serve you together and bear witness with one voice to the nations that Jesus is Lord. Do these things for us by your spirit, by your grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in closing hymn 699, like a river glorious. Hymn 699 will